Let's pray. Dear Father, as we think about what it means to be the church, to be people of the kingdom, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning know what it's like to be like kids. We are to be like children, to make ourselves like children if we want entrance, and we do want entrance into the kingdom. We want to be citizens of glory. We want to be followers of you. We want to be ambassadors for the gospel in this city, for grace. And so you need to make us like children. And so would you help us this morning, um, each of us come with very, very adult concerns uh, that are real. Uh, Various difficulties and challenges and trials and sufferings. And so would you help us know what it means to approach those challenges and difficulties, approach our adult lives and adult concerns with the faith of a child. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the text for today's sermon is one of the more famous scenes in Jesus' ministry. Uh, The story is included in three out of four gospels, which shows how important it is Uh, it was to the apostles that we remember it. That's always sort of a remarkable thing when three out of four apostles include the same story. It sort of should help us to like perk up and say, oh man, this must be really important. And it's a well-known story. Apparently people were uh, always bringing babies and children to Jesus that he might bless them. We can imagine this like a presidential candidate today who has to like kiss babies uh, in his political run, right? A king, a pope, Uh, they all have to do this. And the disciples allowed for it as like a PR thing on occasion. Um, But uh, at some point, for some reason today, they felt like Jesus was too busy. And so they tried to shoo the children away, shoo their families away. And so he, you know, Jesus had lots of people to teach. He had diseases to heal. He had demons to cast out. But then Jesus rebukes the disciples. And he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. As we wrap up today a series on what it means to be the church, this passage is worth lingering over. What's so instructive is that Jesus not only is inviting children to come because he loves children, which he does. He cares deeply about kids. But he's also inviting the children to come because he loves his disciples. And his disciples need children as much as those children need Jesus. They need the example, the uh, standard that are kids in order to follow Jesus themselves. And so Jesus holds up children as the standard for citizens of his kingdom. And not just the standard, but the minimum, the minimum standard here. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And so if you or I try to claim citizenship in God's eternal kingdom without the posture of a child, we will be refused. Whoever's at the front door, I don't know who it's going to be. St. Peter, St. Michael, or Archangel Michael, Jesus himself, I have no idea how it's going to work. But if we come without the posture of a child, we will be turned away and shut out. And those are super high stakes. It's always so instructive when Jesus makes these really firm, matter-of-fact statements. And so we need to get this right. 
We don't want to be left outside. We want to be citizens of the kingdom, of Christ's kingdom. And so let's ask ourselves, let's ponder this morning, what does it mean to have the faith of a child? What does it look like? Children are incredibly vulnerable. Uh, They're unique in the animal kingdom for how helpless they are and for how long. Uh, most baby animals like are, are pretty capable pretty quickly. Deers like hobble around for what, like two seconds, and then they can walk, and then they're pretty good. Um, but that's not true of human animals. We depend on adults around us to provide for our every need for many, many years. Uh, and it seems to just get longer and longer, right? <laughs> so we're like... I don't think 18, it's probably much longer than that now. Um, But in accordance with this need, children are born with this innate sense of trust of their parents, a dependent trust. And as a parent, the trust really feels too big, right? My kids often have too much trust in me. Uh, When my kids were little, they thought I could fix anything. Uh, They would bring me broken slinkies, which are the worst. It's so impossible to fix a broken slinky. Um, We've had two broken televisions in our parenting journey, broken by two different children. I'll let you decide which of those children, uh, which of my three children did that. Um, Both times when they broke the TV, they realized what they did immediately and thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. And so we worked through that. But then after we were all done working through what caused the broken TV, There was an additional wave of grief when they realized that I couldn't fix it, right? Dad can't fix a broken screen. And so you'd say that, but then you'd be like, but you can buy one at Target, right? It's like, no, sweetie, those are expensive. And so we're going to wait a little bit before we can do that. And then comes another wave of tears. Uh, What will we do without a television? Uh, And that's as much me and Maggie. What will we do as parents without a television to put our kids in front of? But anyway, um, kids assume parents can and will fix all their problems, even problems caused by their own disobedience. They assume we will meet all their needs and many of their wants. They bark orders at you all the time. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm bored, fix it. This week I was commanded to purchase felt on Amazon so the sisters could make Halloween costumes for their teeny ties, which I did. This is a diva, Dracula, a slice of pizza, and Luna Lovegood. Um, the sense of entitlement in kids runs so deep. Um, and I need to be really careful at how I address it because I actually want my kids to feel entitled in some ways, in deep ways. My kids are entitled. They are literally given titles that by their last name as a son and two daughters of Dave Ainsworth, they are entitled to my protection, my provision, my presence, and more. I owe them love. And love may not always mean two-day shipping from Amazon, but it always means something. And so this boundless trust of kids comes from a good and right place. It's how the world is supposed to work. I trust you, Dad. I know you'll always keep me safe. You'll always love me. You'll always be good to me no matter what I do. Now get me a snack and some felt. In Luke 18, Jesus is saying that the only kind of faith which entitles one to entrance into the kingdom is the trusting faith of a child. Completely dependent, but also kind of overconfident. A faith that doesn't care if Jesus is busy. He's got time for me. 
God's children are entitled to God's presence, entitled by grace, not through works. They didn't earn it. It's not something we deserve. But because the Father sent the Son, who died for my sins and rose from the dead, I'm entitled to the kingdom. If you trust Jesus, you won't have to beg to enter the kingdom. We don't spend our life where we are earning so that when we get to the gates of heaven, whatever that looks like, we're going to have to grovel. We're going to be able to stroll in and claim the imputed righteousness of Christ, and we'll just walk right through. With children, there should be no question of needing to earn love, earn entrance. It's a simple sense of trust. And by simple, I'm thinking about how children don't trust their parents because they've run the numbers, right? They've figured it out. They've interviewed their parents. They've checked out their resumes. They've read a bunch of books. They just trust him. They just trust mom and dad. And in the same way, in order for our faith to be childlike, our trust in Jesus cannot be a cover for trust in ourselves where we've run the numbers and we've figured it out and we've, we've done uh, the reasoning and the philosophy. And so now I think I'll trust. Ultimately, you might do all of that in, a, in preparation for faith, but ultimately the kind of faith Jesus is highlighting is a faith that abandons trust in self, lives wholly dependent on God, that says, I don't know everything, I don't know much, but I know enough to join my life to Jesus. Before moving on, I wonder how this verse makes you feel. This fact, this cold fact that Jesus states that you can't enter the kingdom of God without the faith of a child. It's kind of a warning that Jesus gives to his own disciples, right? The people who are most dedicated to him. And he sort of challenges them and cautions them. Do you have the faith of a child? How do you feel about the description of childlike faith? Is that attractive to you? Is it comforting that this is all that God requires? Or does it intimidate you to where you think, I don't know how I can do that. It reminds me of Nicodemus when he says to Jesus, when Jesus says to be born again, he says, can I go back into my mother's womb and come back out? And I'm curious I mean, I think he's like over-literalizing what Jesus says, but I think from my perspective, I'm thinking, can I lose my adult cynicism? Like, is there any way that I can return to the naivete of children? Childlike faith can feel just as impossible as being born again. How do I undo the adulteration of adulthood? And so maybe you're not running the numbers on Jesus, whether he's worth your trust, but you're running the numbers on yourself. Am I able to trust God like that? And if that's you, first of all, be encouraged that childlike faith is available to you, that it is an invitation of Jesus. In the parallel passage in Matthew 18, Jesus takes an infant, he puts her in their midst and says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so in that challenge, there's also an invitation. You can turn, unless you turn, you can turn and become like this child. You can humble yourself. You can make that move today for the first time or for the thousandth time. We can abandon self and rest on grace. And if we're to be the church, a gospel church, we must do that. We must be like children. There's no other way. Today's sermon is the last sermon in our series on the church. And over the past eight weeks, I think, we've worked through 
some verbs that describe how the church lives out its identity as the people of God. So the church is a people who believe, who worship, who belong, who give, who grow, who bear witness. And you think about these things and and, and the sum total, and we just really skirted the surface, but the sum total of what the church is called to do, what Christians are called to do, these are big shoes to fill. Uh, This is a big deal when we talk about who the church is, what it's called to be. It's wild, especially considering how the gospel speaks so devastatingly of us as sinners, right? Um, But God, he, uh, even though we don't start out as ideal candidates for the job, like God adopts us into his family and commissions us to be his representatives, even as broken uh, as we are. The specific vision we have for Citizens Church is exciting but big. It's exciting to me. We're a family of missionary servants following Jesus with our whole selves because of who he is and what he's done. And then we flesh that out with distinctives. Many of you have heard this before, that we are a story-formed people. We're shaped. Our entire lives are shaped by the gospel, the, the entire gospel, the entire story of scripture. We are disciples who make disciples, not just focusing on ourselves, but finding our discipleship is in involves investing in other people. Uh, We uh, are about healing and wholeness. So the gospel isn't just about getting the surface right, but it's about going into the depths of our stories and providing healing and wholeness to us. Gospel fluency, that how we access healing and wholeness is through the gospel. It's through repentance and faith in Jesus and what he's done. We live missionally. So again, we don't want to be a church that focuses only on ourselves, even though that feels like that will take a lot of time, right? It would take enough. It would fill my life to just work on us, right? But that's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to go out and to care and to announce the gospel. And one of the main ways to do that is through mercy and justice, that we worship the Lord through pursuing mercy and justice in our city. This is who we are. Um, More than that, it's who we want to be. It's an aspirational vision. But as I was laying out the plan for the series, I I really wanted to end with something restful, like something kind of chill and and contented, that there was a peace about um, our vision. Because of the gospel, we do believe, we worship, we belong, we give, we grow, we bear witness. But in all those activities... Because of grace, we should rest. We should take time to rest, as Rob preached a few, months, or a few months ago. But we also should always be at rest. That should be the way that we move through the world. As big as our vision is, as big as our distinctives are, as big as your unique calling. I know each of you have visions. Each of you have distinctives in your life. The Christian calling is tremendous. But over and above all that is the fact that we are children of the king, young children. And that should take the edge off everything we do. In our life as a church, there should be lots of room for rest, peace, joy, delight, hope, play. Both intentional Sabbath breaks, but also rest and peace experienced while working because While we're working, we're God's kids. The song that Kevin introduced, that we're joyfully picking up the wood and the nails. The work is joyful. And so, yes, we have responsibilities and roles and duties, but we're children. Even when faced with difficulty and challenge, we can move through it with the confidence of a child moving through difficulty alongside 
her safe and strong father. Kids are not allowed to work in this country until a certain age, and that's a good thing, especially small children. When kids are required to work at a very young age, something is broken about that culture. Um, Parents provide for kids. Kids don't provide for kids. Adults protect kids. Kids do not protect kids. Kids might, you know, of course, help around the house and the family business, sure. Uh, But if you're a parent, you know that that is not really all that helpful, right? Uh, You are doing that to build character, to help them grow up uh, in the Lord. It's not their responsibility. The buck doesn't stop with them when it comes to putting food in their mouths. It's the parent's responsibility. And in the same way, in the kingdom of God, you're a kid. And kids don't have to work. This is fundamental to the gospel. It's the scandal of grace. Romans 4, 5. However, to the one who does not work, who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Grace teaches us that we don't have to work, and that is scandalous, but it's true. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. We're free from work. We're free from want, free from danger, free from the responsibility to provide and protect ourselves. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Our future is secure. God does all that. And so maybe you grew up with a less than trustworthy father, less than trustworthy parents. And so it's hard to fathom because you had to provide for yourself what your parents should have provided for you, either physically, materially, or emotionally. You had to protect yourself when your parents should have protected you physically, materially, emotionally. And I am so sorry because that is not the way God designed families to be. That is not the way it's supposed to be, and that's not the way it is in God's kingdom. Christians are children with a fantastically wise and powerful and kind, good dad. We rest in his work for us, in the work of his son, our older brother, our big brother, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And as adopted children, we are not natural children of God. That is just Jesus But we are adopted children, and like most adopted children's stories, it takes a lifetime to learn that they're provided for, to unlearn fear and scarcity and relearn trust. But at the same time, for adopted children, trust is always available. Faith, like a child, allows us to move about the world in a constant posture of rest and freedom. And so I don't experience that Um, It was an ironic week for me to be preparing this sermon. uh, This was not my experience of my week, but it's true nonetheless. This is available to me. Rest and freedom so that I can not only enjoy that for myself, but I can carry that into my family, into my job, into my neighborhood, into the city. Be a non-anxious presence in the city. What would it look like if you at your work was a non-anxious presence because you are confident in the Lord? At a minimum, to be an anxious presence which casts its cares on Jesus to where the heart rate's still elevated 
the stress is still there, but there is a constant casting of cares on Christ. A presence which knows it can't save itself and so simply holds her father's hand and sits in Jesus's lap. It's not my job to secure my future. It's not my job to achieve my vision. Matthew 6. I feel like I uh, quote this verse and read it in full so many times um, in sermons. And, uh, and because it's just wonderful. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor span. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the heaven, into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All those things, they'll be added. Ask yourself, why don't you seek first the kingdom of God? It might be because you're not interested. It sounds completely lame to you. That might be the reason. That, that's something that we wrestle with where it's like, no thanks. Um, but it also might be because you're anxious. You're struggling to seek first the kingdom of God because you're worried about your life. And you're thinking that survival is up to you. That your clothing and your future and your uh, bank account and your relationships are up to you. And Jesus just says, that's God's job. That's your heavenly father's job. He's better at it than you. Move around the world like a child. Psalm 131 captures the faith of a child at rest. It says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And so the psalmist pictures a weaned child. So one who's not desperate to nurse like a newborn, who's sort of frantic. But a child who's content, a weaned child who's just sitting sweetly on his mother's lap. How do we get to that place of contentedness? Well, Psalm 131 tells us, it says, verse one, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And so as a church, we must be careful that our vision statements don't rise too high, that our eyes aren't too high. As individuals, we must be careful that our life goals don't exceed our anointing, where we're trying to achieve things that are outside of our power. We're just children, I should not occupy myself with things too high for me. We tell our kids, and I tell students, that's not your responsibility. That's my responsibility. You can leave that to me. Um, In the same way, I don't want to try to take responsibility away from God for what he has promised that he will do. 
I'm not going to try and save myself. I don't want to try and protect myself. I don't want to try and fix myself or anyone else. I don't want to try and force new circumstances. Those are things God has promised to do according to his will. And I'm going to trust him to keep his promises and to keep them in the way that he sees fit because he is good. I don't want to tell God how to do his job. He is great, glorious, good, and gracious. He knows how. He is God and I am not. And so I just want to do, and I want us as a church to do what we're supposed to do, which isn't very much. Faith, hope, and love, really. That's it. Jesus promises that when we come to him, he'll exchange our heavy heavy yoke of trying to save ourselves with his easy yoke of just being faithfully obedient. When we worry, when I worry, I'm attempting to take back that old heavy yoke on ourselves. And Jesus is like, no, I I got that. I'll carry the heavy things. You carry the small things. Let Jesus take the heavy load and let us stick with the basics to follow him, to depend on him, to listen to him, to talk to him, to rest and abide in him. Let's worry about today, but don't worry about tomorrow. God has got tomorrow. I wanted to end our series with this because wouldn't it be marvelous if we as a church could have a great vision, great aspirations, great hopes while still remaining restful. It's like a holy grail. I don't know if it's possible, but that's what I want. And I think that's what's offered to us is to have tremendous callings. Each of you has have such tremendous callings. Can you move through it restfully? That's what's offered to you. Can we be a non-anxious church in this city, a non-hurried church, a church marked by contentment and confident trust? We can do that by remembering that God is the father and we are his children. Now, you might object, and sometimes my, my soul objects, well, doesn't God call us to do great things And so won't that require lots of energy, lots of focus, lots of stress? Aren't we called to be great men and women of God like so many brothers and sisters across the centuries? And yes, absolutely. But ironically, being children is how God plans for us to accomplish those things. Psalm 8, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength. Jesus is establishing strength. He's stifling his enemy. He's defeating Satan. How? Through the mouths of babies and infants. That's you and me, babies. Through us and our simple, unsophisticated, simple proclamation of the gospel. And so it's true. We are more powerful than we think, but not in the way we think. God is not waiting for us to become superstars. He's not waiting for us to kill it at life and at work and at church. He doesn't need you to work more, to work better, to try harder. He is establishing strength through your weakness. And so we can take it easy. We can be at rest. If there's no work left that we have to do, what can we do? Um, If you're independently wealthy, that's sort of a funny thing, you know, um, we all talk about what would it be like to be independently wealthy? If there's no work to do, what do you do? If nothing can be added to what God does and nothing can be taken away, what's left? What's our purpose? Well, what's left is play. There's no other way to describe it. 
And in my mind, this is actually a more obvious characteristic of children. When I think about children, when I think about my kids, they just want to play all the time, all the time. The wean child sitting contentedly on her mother's lap is a sweet idea, but any mother knows that in 30 seconds, that wean child is going to be scooting down and trying to find something to explore and break, right? Children love to play. That is the defining characteristic of being a kid, the ability to play. Everything is a playground to kids. Everything's a toy. I have to prepare my kids where we go. This is not a playground. They have heard that phrase from me hundreds of times, right? This is a funeral home, not a playground. Thank you. Don't climb on your grandmother's casket. Um, A child's sense of entitlement to protection and provision and presence, it extends beyond the parent to their surroundings where they feel entitled to everything in their sphere. It's wild. And you just can't believe, like, why why do you think you can do that? Why did you do that? Like, parents know, what were you thinking? For a child, the whole world is theirs to explore when they're in the shadow of a loving and safe parent. This comes from their strong sense of trust. They're able to play because they feel so safe. And that should cause us to think, could play have anything to do with life in the kingdom? If true rest springs from radical trust in God, shouldn't my rest result in play? Kids love to play. They turn their work into play. And that should inspire us as children of God. In the kingdom, our work should take on a playful character. After the gospel, which is a salvation by grace through faith, not of works, what work becomes is freely given obedience in response to freely given grace. I am just freely obeying in a delightful way I don't work for merit. I don't work for wages. I don't work for glory. I have all of that in Jesus. I work for fun. I work for kicks. I work for joy. Even our suffering following Jesus is for the joy that is set before us. It's something we choose because God has chosen us. You can play in the worst circumstances. That's one of the beautiful things about children. It's so remarkable when you see images of uh, immigrants, refugees, the, the images from this week, the uh, citizens from Haiti at the border of Texas, and it's tragic to see children, but at the same time, they're playing, and you just can't believe it, that these kids in the worst circumstances, in the hardest and most disruptive times, will still make time to turn their world into a playground. It's beautiful. This is faith. These children are showing faith that the world is okay, that there is safety here. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. And what is our work as the children of God? It's to glorify God in word and deed. It's to love him and love others. And so... Ecclesiastes, it's almost too good. Your job is to be joyful and to do good as long as you live. It's the greatest job. Your gift is to eat and drink and take pleasure in all your toil. And this doesn't mean we keep on sinning because actually sin gets in the way of play, right? I need to get rid of sin in my life because it's robbing joy from me. 
right? For the Christian, sin's no longer condemnation because there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, but sin is still deadening, right? It takes away my taste for joy, like trying to enjoy an expensive dinner while being nauseous. Like you don't want to do that. And so like, let's, let's remove the reasons for nausea so I can actually enjoy the world that's before me. Freedom is for joyful obedience. And my hope in this series, and in general, my desire uh, as a preacher of God's word, is that it, come, it leads to joy. So that when you consider the actions that we're called to, believing, worshiping, belonging, giving, growing, bearing witness, resting, I hope that you hear that and say, I want to do that. That sounds really great. That sounds fun. That sounds life-giving. And I don't always succeed. Um, I regularly don't succeed as a preacher. Um, reflecting on my preaching, I felt like the first sermon on believing that I really biffed it. Um, and I don't, it, it's not necessarily because I said untrue things. I might have. But I felt like the affect was untrue. It, it came out when I left. I sort of, it came out more like culture worry. And I just was like, oh, that's not, that, there's a place for that. But that's actually not what I was hoping for. I was hoping that there would be delight in believing. I didn't want it to be an angry sermon. It's a joy to believe in Jesus. It's a joy to read God's word, to swim and frolic in the glories of truth, to rest in grace, to consider the awesomeness of God's attributes. I wanted that affect in my preaching. African theologian Nimi Waraboko has a chapter in a book entitled Religion as Play. And he has this great sentence. He says, in this book, he's Pentecostal, so you know he knows how to play. Um, In this book, play is not a counterpoint to work or the opposite of seriousness, but is the deactivation of the law and the radicalization of saving grace. And that's a big sentence with lots of big words, but it, it's worth lingering over. That play is the deactivation of the law. That if there's no condemnation for you, if your salvation is certain, well, then that allows you to move through the world in a radically different way. Because there aren't rules, right? Rules for kids hamper play, right? Don't do this, don't do that. The law is gone And so you're able to just move and play. It's the radicalization of saving grace. You have been adopted into the family of God, transferred into the kingdom of heaven. You have everything you need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. You are independently wealthy in in God's kingdom. The spirit of power is with you and inside you. It's a guarantee of your future inheritance. That should change the way you look at the world. It should inspire a playfulness in your heart. From the vantage point of eternity, nearly all of life is a movement toward rest and play. And so the story of God is a comedy, not a tragedy, because it ends good. We're moving towards rest and play. It's Midsummer Night's Dream, not uh, Romeo and Juliet. That's why God calls us to set aside time every week to rest our bodies and our minds and our souls because it's a, we have to discipline ourselves to remember that. So many things about the world look like tragedy and are tragic. 
But in order to raise our faith up high, to take the long view and to realize that all things are ending well, we discipline ourselves. We set aside time saying, don't, we're, God, we're remembering that God is creator and redeemer. And one sign that our rest is working is when we begin to allow ourselves the freedom to play. And so, you know, so many times where I'm exhausted and so you fall into some activity, but it's not, it, you're so exhausted that you don't get to the point of play, right? And so it takes like a sense of freedom as an adult to start to sort of dabble and, and move around the house in a new way. We wanna trust God with our life. We wanna set our work aside. We wanna give him all our worries about the future. We wanna be in the present. And then once we can do that, then we can start to play, delighting in God's creation for no other reason than the joy of it. And then when we discipline ourselves to do that, to make time for play, our posture towards life will become more playful, more trusting. Um, The saying, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. All work and no play makes Dave a dull Christian. And so I need to ask myself, am I finding my faith dull? Why is that? When am I allowing myself the freedom to play in life? To be playful on the weekend, to be playful at work. Because as Wiraboko says, play is not the opposite of work. It's not the opposite of seriousness. It is very serious. It is work. Edenic work. And so I just would ask you to consider where in your life, where in your personal life, in your relational life, in your church life, can you accent your work with a spirit of play where you can approach it with a playfulness? Can you turn your parenting, your relationships, your commute, your chores into play? Where can you pursue joy? Who do you know that needs help pursuing joy? Maybe you have an abundance of freedom. And so how can you invite someone else? Some of you are very gifted at playfulness, and I'm not. Um, On the Enneagram, I score like a .04 or something in the seven joyful category. Um, And so uh, I had a therapist that was really concerned about me and paused at that moment to ask me how I was doing. I need help pursuing joy. My children are a big help. My son always wants to have fun all the time. And so he leads me in joyfulness and play. Who do you know that needs to believe the gospel? They need Jesus. And a good introduction to Jesus is having fun with God's children. That's a great introduction. Are you a restful person? Do you bring light into people's lives? One difficulty with being like children pursuing rest and play is that children aren't efficient and neither is faith. So that's the thing that we have to recognize. It's like faith is not efficient. It doesn't work quickly. It doesn't work according to schedule. It's easily distracted. It bumps its knee and has to need five band-aids. It wants a snack. Like it's not efficient in any way. Church is not efficient. If I've learned anything in 12 years of church planning is that church is not efficient. It doesn't move according to my prospectus. All right, discipleship, relationships, mission, worship, none of it is efficient. And, and that's on purpose because efficiency comes from a place of scarcity, right? And if the world isn't scarce, if God isn't scarce, then he'll take all the time in the world. He has all the time. Faith isn't efficient, but we're a kingdom of kids. And so who cares about efficiency? 
Let's not be burdened to move from season to season to season, to march through life, to get to that next place. In order to be people of faith who become like children, who go through a life with a posture of rest and play, we'll have to sacrifice efficiency. When she was little, one of my kids struggled a lot with fear and separation anxiety. And we would go to parks, playgrounds, and she would refuse to play. No matter how hard we tried, uh, she would just sit in our laps. And this was before she could talk, but then as she learned to speak, she told us clear as day, she goes, I'll play when he leaves. And sure enough, there's some dad that for some reason she doesn't like. And so she wouldn't get down off our laps until he was gone. And he would leave, he'd pack up his family and go, and then she'd hop down and she'd start playing. You try to say, oh, baby, he's a dad, mommy's right here, you can play. Mm -mm. Thankfully, she has grown from that. 1 John 4 teaches us that perfect love drives out fear. We're perfectly loved. Loved by not just an earthly father who can only do so much. I can only protect and provide so much by by our heavenly father who owns everything, is all powerful and all good. We can rest because we've been perfectly loved. God the father has adopted you. He's rescued you from sin and death. He has provided you everything you need. He has guaranteed your future. Nothing can separate you from the love of God for you. And like a good dad, he has brought you to a wonderful playground. And he's cleared the playground of all ultimate dangers. There are challenges for sure, but playgrounds would be no fun if there weren't some challenges. You wouldn't get stronger without challenges. There might even be enemies lurking around. But he promises you that he'll be with you and he'll keep you safe. You don't have to keep you safe. You don't have to provide for your needs. He's got you. This is your life. This is your playground. Won't you play? Let's pray. Dear Father, we long, I long for the perspective of a kid, a safe kid. A kid who feels safe, who feels provided for, who knows his parent is near, even to the point of being a little bit overconfident, entitled to your goodness and your kindness. Father, help us not to approach you with scarcity, with fear. Would you teach us how to unlearn those patterns and thoughts? to become like children. Father, I pray specifically for those here who grew up in homes where they weren't discipled in these ways. They were harmed. They were neglected. And so it's especially hard for them to believe the promises that they are too good to be true. Father, would you draw near to them? Would you give them experiences of rest and play? Would this church be a safe place for those people, for these people, for people here, that that this would be a safe place to rest and play, where performance wouldn't be 
encouraged through shame and guilt and stress and fear, but that there would be an abundance here. Father, we need Jesus. This is a miraculous turn in our hearts. It really does feel like I'm having to go back into my mother's womb and start all over again. You are able to do that. The spirit is powerful to uh, rebirth our lives. Father, I pray for those who have never thought about the gospel in this way. Would you invite, would you invite them along with all of us to trust you 100%? like a kid, a simple all-in trust. And would you help us to experience freedom from that? We love you. We're thankful for you. I'm thankful for for this family. I'm thankful for churches throughout the city. Um, We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.